millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Roll to Cast, a tabletop RPG podcast with both actual plays and interviews. I'm Chris, and this week I'm joined around the table by Sean. Hello! And Ellen. Hello! Following the end of Season 2's actual play of Vampire the Masquerade, we continue our inter-season content uh, as we're joined this week by a wonderful man. He's the developer <laughs> of Vampire the Requiem's first edition, was the co-designer of Exalted, and has authored over 100 Vampire the Masquerade slash Requiem books. And that's just for starters. We're excited <laughs> to get to know our guest, Justin Achille. Woo! Did, clap, did clap, you call clap, me clap, a clap. wonderful man? A yeah. wonderful man. <laughs> I may have misspoke, Justin. Wow. <laughs> How are you? That is one hell of an introduction. This is great. <laughs> you deserve it. We really need to like insert some applause because that was just like, Woo. you really ought to be walking onto a stage just then to like receive some kind of accolade. <laughs> it's for my future career as a talk show host. How are you, Justin? I'm, uh, I'm doing pretty well. Uh, I woke up about an hour and a half ago. I ate. I have something to drink. Everything's square over here. It's good. Good, Fantastic. Good, good. You're looking after your body. That's like what we uh, what we like to hear. Yeah. Uh, for listeners, the time zones are a bit funny here. It's what nine thirty over where you are, Justin, and here it's nearing midnight. Yeah, we're not doing so hot. I'll tell you right now. <laughs> <laughs> I've got you punchy. You've got me fresh. This is going to be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what What I love about this entire kind of scenario is how this came about. Because uh, Justin, just to pull back the veil a bit, we were like kind of you were a person that we really wanted to hopefully get a chance to even just say hi would you like to come on our podcast <laughs> and we were trying to think of ways to how might we get in touch with you and so we're trying to figure out oh is there like a, a public email or is there a, an account that we can go through that was kind of chris's job and then he kind of comes to me about a day or so later and he goes hey guess who's being followed by justin on twitter I'm like who he's like Fucking you. <laughs> I'm not the guy who's played Justin's games for maybe ten or ten or fifteen years. Oh, this uh, isn't a game of, this isn't a game of who daddy loves most, Chris. <laughs> it, uh, 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 we're playing vampire, of course it is. The, an- <laughs> the answer is Kane. Um, uh, Justin, um, we talked to you up or I talked to you up quite a lot in that in, uh, the intro, but you really have written a significant amount of the the Vampire Masquerade and the Vampire Requiem canon. You're you're a prolific writer. Uh, you've written and and I believe designed for video games as well. That's quite a lot. <laughs> Let's pull it right back. How did you get into writing in the beginning? Uh, okay. Let's see. Uh, I was actually playing live action role playing games uh, at the time when uh, Mike Tinney, who was uh, then running the Night Owl kind of subsection of White Wolf, the, the, the live-action arm of mm-hmm. White Wolf, um, came to host a game in Dallas, Texas, where I was living at the time. Uh, my girlfriend and I went and played uh, in the game, 
And I just met and hung out with Mike. Um, I, it turned out like weirdly he had forgotten a pair of socks. So I took him to get a pair of socks <laughs> while he was staying. Um, so, you know, I just, we had kind of a, I, I got to spend some personal time with one of the company guys. Um, Strengthens and the at the time he was working on moving out from uh, Night Owl to working on the Rage collectible card game. Um, so a couple weeks, maybe a couple months later, uh, he gave me a call back or an email back. I don't even remember at this point and said, Hey, uh, we had some, we got this project coming up. Would you like to work on it? I guess he got some kind of sense that I was, you know, fairly organized and could turn shit in on time. I don't know. Uh, but basically, uh, the, the, the job came up through having played live action games. And then I got in basically my, my foot in the door was working on card games. And, uh, at that point, um, after a, several, about a year, I guess, or so, uh, working on the card game, um, they were trying to spin the Dark Ages uh, RPG line up into a fully supported line. So not just a one-off, they wanted full support for it. So they opened up a position. I said, I would love to do that. And uh, there it happened. And this would have been around 1995, if I'm remembering dates right? Yeah, I started in, I think, April, March or April of 95, <laughs> um, and then 96. 697, I was doing Dark Ages. So wow, can I we? just point out that I'm pretty certain Ellen wasn't even alive in no. 1995. I was gestating. You know what? I love that sort of thing. <laughs> uh, was, it, was it nice and warm on the inside, I guess? I don't know. Uh, look, my mom has a cold, cold heart, so I'm going to say no. <laughs> you know what? I wouldn't. <laughs> I'm glad I came out into a world with such, such wonderful writings and game systems about. <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of interesting because you mentioned that you were a part of the LARP scene, Justin. Were you involved with kind of tabletops and, and LARPs from a young age? Because like for myself and Ellen, we've only really started getting into tabletops in general for the past couple of years where Chris has been going for well over a decade, um, if not longer. Um, so how did kind of you get into that scene in, to begin with and what, what kind of spurned your love of tabletops? Uh, I got into it comparatively young, I think. And it's a fairly standard story there, like literally playing. D&D in my cousin's basement. Yep. <laughs> um, I was probably seven or eight years old, right? And so we're hanging out in the concrete basement, listening to Rush. You know, there's some posters on the wall. <laughs> I'm an elf falling into a trap. And um, So, you know, it was, I think, a fairly standard introduction there. And so I played games throughout uh, elementary school, maybe a little bit into junior high. I, I fell out a little bit in high school, um, but then got back into it weirdly um when uh, like I, I was saying earlier uh my girlfriend and i went to go play this larp i, I started dating this woman and she, and she said uh hey there's this game um that where you play vampires and werewolves and we were both big Anne rice fans and so i said oh yeah yeah i know what kind of games those are i used to play those when i was younger so like i, I always laugh about this part of the, the 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 interview but like my girlfriend got me back into gaming <laughs> ah, there you go and the tables have turned <laughs> fellas listen to the ladies <laughs> Um, I have a, a question about, well, kind of LARP, but I, I think I was listening to another interview where you were talking about how a vampire ha is kind of like a lifestyle over a game. Like there's a big influence in in a kind of culture of vampire and, and the dressing up and the role playing and, you know, that now being taken to, to podcasting and, and people participating in, in watching people perform vampire. Like why do you think that happens over maybe D&D &D or some other kind of role-playing games? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, that's actually something I think D&D 5th Edition has done really well, is they've kind of turned, you know, they're not just selling games, right? They're selling kind of accessories that go with it. They're really selling you kind of lifestyle. There's just almost like Starbucks approach to it. <laughs> um, but Vampire, I thought, had that a little earlier on. Like, I remember... Not only were we making the game, but we were going out like every night in Atlanta, back when White Wolf was in Atlanta, uh, every night there was a specific club night that kind of catered to, you know, the, the, the dark interests, whether it's goth subculture or, you know, tonight's industrial night or whatever. Um, but, you know, it wasn't just a game. It was like you say, it was it was more of a lifestyle. And for me, it's always been I've always loved the night. I've always been fascinated with kind of the beauty of darkness and, you know, not to oversell it or sound like a teenager there. Um, but, you know, there there is kind of a wonder in almost the forbidden mm. um, and that kind of translates above and beyond RPGs and so what Vampire did was kind of take that lifestyle and say you can kind of play it 
with this subset of rules. You know, here's vampires, here's werewolves, here's wizards and ghosts and that sort of stuff. Um, so it, you know, it, it took, I think, things that people were doing anyway and just moved them into uh, the familiar environments of uh, RPGs, of tabletop games. That makes sense. Like you got to, it's, it's so hard to ac- like access all those themes, but when you have a kind of limitations, it somehow makes the game more fun, you know, makes it more fun to play within this moral question of what's right what's wrong what can i touch what can't i touch as as someone who who writes and, and who does game design like i love that sort of the, the constraint you're talking about there right like just completely open-ended a uh, game can be about anything all right well you're gonna have a hard time hooking someone yeah. but when it becomes a question of morality when you say you know like hey we're gonna explore some dark themes here or you're the bad guy fighting against being the bad guy all of a sudden you know you've got this very very um specific but very very fallow field to start exploring we'll get back to you as a designer but as a writer how did you start um because that's quite a lot to be kind of uh, thrust into this uh this at the time quite and still now quite prolific uh game company how was the trend transition were you drawing on skills that you'd already developed and were were honing in or was this oh i have to write now okay time to write (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i had always been interested in writing Um, i had taken classes in school uh, to kind of help me polish the craft there Um, so it's been something that i had been doing at the time for uh, let's say years Uh, but one of the big things that's different between uh, just writing and making games and, and design is like cleaving to a publishing schedule, working something into a publishable draft and getting it off to, uh, you know, a, a graphic designer and into layout and into like a printable form. That's suddenly where you start acquiring these skills that are way outside the realm of, you know, just committing ideas to paper. Um, so that I think was a big, an opportunity for me to do something that I loved, which was writing and then kind of cultivate it into a bigger and even more broadly applicable skill set of, of overall publishing. So, so that was the big leap for me less so the, the writing, which I was already comfortable doing, um, and more so the uh, you know turning it into quote unquote product. I hate the word product. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it's you know, turning it into something that someone could could buy and sit down and read and, and you know carry with them that kind of thing. For some writers, they have quite a, a a difficult time holding to schedule. So for you, that transition wasn't difficult at all. The kind of the process of your own writing, kind of those were skills that you were adding to. It didn't disrupt your your own established writing process. Yeah, that's an, an amazing question because there were, there was like you say there was this huge spectrum at Right Wolf. There was kind of the traditional um, creative uh, tornado type who like it's five in the morning and I had this great idea and I'm going to bang it out, write it down. Like not me, man. I am, I, I work from this hour to this hour and my creativity is, you know, I've kind of cultivated it to be the most functional in those spaces. Um, so, you know, being able to, to fit the schedule actually, I think was probably easier for me than someone who uh, like Phil Bricado, who had worked on mage. Like he's one of those guys who, when inspiration hits like bang, he's at the computer and it doesn't matter whether it's day or night or whether he's out and about or in, you know, home in his office, you know, whatever there. So, so for me, I thought the transition was was a little easier, but it was always something you could you could see like in the office, you know, you go in and for whatever reason, somebody is working on a draft at two in the morning or someone is trying to, you know, get this thing uh, laid out and off to the printer. And like for me, oh no, that was hours ago. Yeah, <laughs> it's quitting time, guys. I'm, I'm going to the pub. I'm sorry. The, the fact that you say that, you know, a, a consistent and reliable writer exists in the world. I just I'm I'm shook to my very core. I just don't understand how that works. Well, I mean, everybody's creative process is different right and i'm not trying to say like oh if you do it the right way like i do you can be you know you can it can be flawless for you you know quite the opposite everyone kind of finds their groove everyone finds the way that they are the most effective their kind of personal best practice when you look back on on your writing do you see common themes or deliberate tonal decisions or a, a sort of practice which you use to convey whatever you're looking to achieve, whether that's little tricks that you've picked up or anything in that realm? For me personally, the biggest impetus to write is is literally having something to say. Like I'm not a person who can take a piece of paper and just start noodling and eventually the idea will come out. I generally, before I start writing, I don't necessarily have an outline, but I know what I want to start you know, talking about as I write. And for a long time, you can see, you know, you can, you can, 
for every developer who worked on Vampire, they explored different themes. You know, everything always kind of came back to the to the to the same foundation for them. Um, and for me, uh, especially early on as I was working on it, um, I was looking at vampires as basically substance abusers, right? Like they are all addicts to to vitae, to blood. And uh, you know, at the at the time, I was a pretty heavy drinker myself, so there was a lot of kind of personal experience that I could filter through that that uh, vampire lens, as it were. Um, and that's changed over time for me. You know, like right now I see vampires as people who um, just kind of take and take and take from society or from the world and, and literally give nothing back. Like all they do is, is exist to extract having that kind of framework, having that kind of sense that you're or, or that lens that you're looking through with your writing or that that filter that you're trying to commit to paper, I think is a huge um, creative benefit uh, because it keeps you focused. And, you know, there's always something more to say if you know what you're going to say. Um, and that's why so many of the games push this idea of when you start your chronicle, know what your theme is. You know, if you don't have a theme, if you're just going to kind of aimlessly wander around, you're probably not going to engage your players very well. But but if you have something that the Chronicle is trying to say, you know, that's always something that will come through that, you know, the players can shoot, make their decisions based on. And you can always have the consequences to those decisions kind of reinforce that. So, you know, not only is that true in writing, it's true in gameplay at the table as well. If Vampire, like you said, has a particular lens, what do you think it is in in terms of it allowing to heighten uh, certain attributes in writing. Do you think Vampire or any of the other White Wolf or any other properties really have particular lenses that you are attracted to? Um, obviously, I'm, I'm thinking of Vampire because your, so much of your writing is in that genre. Mm -hmm. are, there, are there any particular things that you like about it? Because like you said, you it began as they're kind of addicts and now they're kind of mindless consumers. Why does Vampire highlight qualities that you like, for instance? Uh, regardless of what the theme is, it always, to me, comes back to as well an exploration of morality. Um, and that is something that um, has been true for me, like even outside of my White Wolf work. I, I don't like to typically work on games where like uh, you just, hey, wa wander through the scene and, and kill people, right? Like I'm not super interested in shooters or things like that, but I'm always interested in stuff where, you know, if you have to make a choice, what are the consequences of that choice? And that always feels extra resonant to me when there's morality. Like if you just tell me I'm the good guy and I'm wandering through the game, just killing people left and right, am I really the good guy? You know, are we... Are you just telling me or, or am I basically consuming propaganda <laughs> yeah, almost? Yeah. Right. Um, so, you know, Vampire and the World of Darkness overall has always been really good for exploring, you know, that morality, which I think is just personally very interesting. Um, but as well, uh, one of the things that I love, love, love about the World of Darkness is how kind of lush and oversaturated it is. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's very sensory. Mm. Um, it's something where, you know, the kind of the, the, the color is turned up to 11 on it. Mm. And, uh, you know, you can you can smell, uh, you know, having grown up or not grown up, but having worked so much in Atlanta, um, you know, there's there's kind of a southern gothic sense to yes. it where you know there's I, I can pick up the magnolia on the air and it's it's very humid so i can feel just there's a tactile difference in going outside on your skin and all of that just feels so world of darkness to me and i think for a lot of people can kind of transplant to their own individual locations right um i don't i i've never been to australia but i imagine there's something that feels very distinct about being in australia and that is perfect fodder for you know sensory description when you run a world of darkness game there absolutely i mean we have a, a genre of our own called the australian gothic which explores the heat of the australian uh, desert and the sort of isolation that we have which i think uh being part of the you know, LARP community and the, the kind of vampire community for so many years, it definitely permeates uh, into most of what we do. Uh, I, I wanted to ask about, um, you know what? My brain's just stopped. I've, I've got a question I, yeah, in the meantime. Yeah. Uh, it's, sorry, I was like, no, I've got a question. I'm going to lead up to something. I'm, no, I don't actually. I feel, I, like just... you, I feel like you were so knocked back by the all the evocative and lush imagery and, uh, you know, the sensation of, of all the... I was just the, transplanted. But, uh, the word images that we were painting for you, Chris, yeah, and you yeah. were just held, you know, fixated upon them. Justin, you were, uh, you, you were chatting about kind of your, your writing process before. I'm kind of interested because I think on directors like... Uh, James Cameron and Christopher Nolan, who mm -hmm. kind of sit on ideas until uh, the circumstances or the year or kind of a time and the place are just right. These are ideas that they kind of foster 
over time. And as 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 someone who can't just you know, as you say, you can't just get up and write as a time as it dictates. Do you find that when you're working on say a system, whether it be Requiem or Masquerade, and whether it's in a time period, you have to kind of sit on an idea and wait until you're in the right time or place or circumstance have there been instances of that or can you find generally that a lot of your ideas do match uh the product that you're working on at a given time i think it's something that you generally train yourself toward to do so you can well not necessarily everybody again the the process is individual but um i actually benefit from i was talking a little bit about creative constraint before and time can literally be one of those creative constraints Mm. so you know i can literally know hey my best hours are uh, uh, between, um, you know, 1030 and uh, one o'clock, you know, I, I, I may be a little bit hungry. So, you know, but before I get fully hungry and, and, and distracted, you know, there's, there's, there's always a peak hour. And so uh, kind of your best stuff will often fall into, if you do observe that kind of rigor, your best stuff, you will have a, a kind of window that you can find. But there's also always stuff that I hate to, I don't want to describe it as filler, um, but there's always like the connective tissue, right? Or there's always editing you can do, or there's always, hey, I got that scene out. I got it written down. Now I need to go back and, and you know, hone it or craft it or take the, the rough edges off. Um, so I think generally, you know, as, as you talk about Nolan or, or Cameron, they have their big idea. And a lot of the, the actual work work goes in taking that big idea and making it, you know, translating it into the form of media that they specialize in. You know, obviously making a movie is very different from, uh, you know, writing a piece of written fiction, you know, but there's, there's always kind of support work to be done for it. And sometimes that's literally like I have a, a book that I wrote on my own and just organizing the thing, right? Like just breaking it out into individual chapters chapters and each chapter was a separate document and I had them all numbered correctly. And so like dealing with that sort of bullshit is important because <laughs> otherwise you've got just like this pile of writing that it, it can, it's effectively just a scribble, right? Unless mm. you can use it, it's just a jumble of words. And so being able to kind of organize all of that stuff that's the hard part. It's not the glamorous part, but it's the stuff that needs done. And so I'm glad that I can kind of, when I'm not at a creative high, there's always that work. You know, I, I like the organizational part of it as well. <laughs> I think for a lot of people, the organizational part is a bit of a turnoff. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, if, if you're going to be able to make something that you're able to put in front of somebody else, some amount of that uh, has to be done. Well, I think you talking about it as connective tissue kind of belies what you mean by that. Like it's all still part of it. Uh, editing and, and mm-hmm. shaping mm-hmm. it is all still you know even chapter titles like they they are part and fundamentally the the construct that you're building speaking of media what about you what are your sorts of uh what do you like to watch on a tv film or or books that you like to consume what influences you as a person or even theater may we dare say as theater actors we have to ask that question (laughs) it's fine if you don't in high school i actually was in theater uh briefly like i think probably just my freshman year and i and i churned out of that so that 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 wasn't the environment for me i'm not a i'm not a big theater fan you know not to denigrate it or anything of course not my not my preferred media Uh, but i go through gluts i'll go through periods of time where like i'm gonna watch this entire series you know on Netflix or you know, I'm gonna read this entire series of books there's a, a book I'm reading right now uh, the trader Baru Cormorant by uh, Seth I forget the last name of it on my <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not, I don't I don't think it's self Seth Rogen. Um, but it's, it's you know part yes. of a bigger series and I've just started reading it um, I just finished watching on uh, Netflix there was this uh, of course I just watched uh, the last kingdom again recently so I've been with that through all four seasons I just watched a show called uh, the protector on Netflix Netflix, which is this kind of um, hidden mystery. It takes place in Istanbul. And so there's this this uh, kind of historically reoccurring protector who uh, protects the city from these horrible immortals. And it's, you know, they're not quite vampires, but there's this greater sense of, of beauty and history. And if you scratch a little deeper, you can find, you know, beneath the surface, all these mysteries happening in the world. So I like that kind of stuff. Um, last night, I watched the uh, Richard III, um, the, the one back from uh, 1995 with um, uh, Robert. Robert Downey and mm. Ian McKellen in it. Oh. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of all over the place right so now. So you do um, like theater. <laughs> Try to sneak that yeah, past us. I, I knew I wasn't going to get that past you. So. <laughs> <laughs> 
when you're writing, do you seek out media that's applicable to what you're writing for in the genre or tone that you're looking for? Or do you tend to uh, already draw from what you've got? That is a great question. Um, in general, I try to avoid um, the genre or the ideas that I'm specifically writing in at the time, because I think kind of subconsciously you're always influenced by that sort of thing. And I want there to be as much um, kind of originality to the work I'm doing as possible. But at the same time, I'm fucking writing about vampires, right? So there's <laughs> kind of a cultural worldwide precedent that I'm going to be drawing from at some point. So, uh, you know, I, I like there to be things that if you like vampires, you might like this vampire thing that I've worked on. You know, there needs to be some something in the DNA there. Uh, but overall, I think uh, while I'm working, I'm more, I put on music in the background and there's rarely any uh, lyrics in the music I'm listening to while writing or it's in a, a language I don't speak, so I'm not distracted by the lyrics. Um, but I think probably my immediate mood while writing is more directly affected by that music than it is by something I'm reading, you know, before bedtime or watching at dinner time. In terms of like getting into the mood of writing or you were kind of talking about the, the bullshit that comes with writing, like all the technical constraints, do you find that makes it kind of easier when you're jumping from medium to medium? Like, you know, what's the difference between writing for a video game as opposed to a tabletop RPG, like uh, there's technical limitations and do you find that kind of helps you get into the zone or how do you kind of approach tackling something that's exists in a different medium? I hadn't thought about that until you brought it up just now, but like when I sit down to write, you know, <laughs> fiction for myself as, or, 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 you know, something for a book, I'm writing in generally a word processor. But when you are writing for a video, Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Video games, you are at times, and uh, probably other people you talk to on the, on the podcast will be able to corroborate this, but like sometimes you're writing in Excel, right? Like sometimes you're literally writing lines of dialogue that fit into one cell on a spreadsheet, and that is not a conducive <laughs> environment to, to <laughs> write very creatively. I was working on a project recently where I was literally writing in an engine, like in, in the game engine. It's almost lines of code, except it's not, right? It's, it's lines of dialogue. And I mean, again, also not very conducive to, it just doesn't have the tools in place for script writing. Oh I'm, I'm sorry, but I have a big question on this. Why? <laughs> you were writing in an engine? Like, okay. I just have several. <laughs> so the way it worked was you wrote in engine because attached to the engine was the localization tool. So you write into the engine. So immediately you can test uh, the uh, validity of your work. You, you can have the character run around and say dialogue line X and the character will say it. So that all works. But okay. then that is all then at some point automated output to a localization manager so you know it's a game that's going to be uh handled in you know 8 10 12 languages so everything you do then is managed in that tool and so the repository for writing is usually in parallel on that tool but because of the import export process it happened in the engine so stuff you wrote in the tool which you had previously used to write which got pushed into the engine for whatever reason on this project uh, that uh, had been reversed, right? They, I think, wanted a little bit more of a uh, quick prototyping sort of situation, like, you know, see this stuff in the game real time as opposed to wait for an import from the localization tool. Um, you know, super not sexy, not amazingly fun to talk about um, and uh, <laughs> not thrilling to write.
Biden. <laughs> it's help for you, but it's helpful for everyone else. <laughs> yes. It would be yes. like if you wrote out a script on individual little like fortune cookie pieces of paper and like handed that to the actor while still running around on stage. <laughs> well, you didn't hand them to them. You had a handful of them and you just kind of threw them you at just them, threw them and the hope they land in a logical sequence. So. I, I do have a question in terms of this is something that I asked uh, Mike Pondsmith. Because you have gone through uh, this career for a number of years and you've written, uh, what as Chris said, in excess of 100 books, you get to kind is of this, look... Is this your way of calling me old? Is that what's going on here? <laughs> I, look, I've been giving dicks at you the entire episode. I apologize. I'm, I'm trying to make myself feel big. Um, <laughs> we don't want to say the O word. Experience is what we say here. But, but I, I feel you, you do get a chance to kind of look back on kind of your career as a whole and kind of everything you've done and extrapolate lessons from that, whether they be positive or negative. Have you kind of had time and look back at whether they are uh, things you've realized are just the way you fundamentally work correctly for yourself or lessons you've learned over time where you can look back on a lot of your older things and go, okay, that's something that I would never do now, but it's I'm fucking glad I know that now. Writing is very much like any skill it's even almost like physical strength like you know the more you work out the stronger you get you know the the more you break those muscle fibers the stronger they grow back blah 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 and so like the more you write the more more better you will make words at (laughs) Um, the more you write the the better you become at the craft of it right um and so you know there's earlier stuff where i relied a lot on um kind of tone and less on you know readability or craft or you know i'm guilty of trying to shock here and there um less so now uh than i did earlier on you know some of the the earlier vampire work that i did things like in in the giovanni clan book were definitely kind of spikes of strangeness or you know trying to provoke the audience um and i think there's definitely places for that um, but that's not necessarily the stuff that i personally want to do anymore so you know if i were managing a game line i would look for someone else who is you know hey you're really good at provoking the audience whereas you know i'm better at building a a greater sense of world or you know whatever whatever i want from that particular writer whatever strength they bring to it and so i think you know it's just a question of looking back and willing to not be embarrassed by your older stuff there's always it's kind of like looking at a picture of yourself like oh god look what we wore back in those days or (laughs) oh god look how we wrote back in those days but that's helping you right it's it's part of the journey and so you need to make mistakes you know you need to have stuff that you can look back on and either be embarrassed about or cringe about, but it's helping move you forward. And I'm a firm believer in the idea that when you think, the moment you think you have nothing left to learn, that's that's your, the beginning of your decline right there. And so if you always look at your creative body of work and think, hey, this is me getting better, this is me getting better, and even the bad stuff is me learning what not to do, you know, that's a perspective that I think will always serve you well. In terms of collecting all of that or collating of that, do you have any advice for someone starting out as a writer working in tabletop RPGs? I think the most important thing, like literally the most important thing, write, just write something. Um, if it's, you know, starting with a blog, great. If it's writing uh, adventures or uh, scenarios that only your group consumes at the table, great. And you can shop those around, you know, you can use those uh, when you go to different publishers and say, you know, look at their at their submission guidelines and say, you know, oh, they're looking for this, I can submit this piece of work or, oh, they're looking for this, I will need to make something new, but I've learned from writing for my table or writing for my blog to do this you need to write just just do it you know um there's a lot of people who i think like the idea of being a writer more than they like writing and you know i don't want to condemn anybody but having a word processor doesn't make you a writer <laughs> like writing makes you a writer yeah. you can be a shitty writer you can be a learning writer you can be a magnificent writer you can be a writer you know in transition to the best writer you will ever be but you need to be doing it never let that part of it fall to the wayside. Um, and this, I think, is is particularly frustrating. There's a great democratization of the kind of desktop publishing era where anybody can publish anything. And so a lot of times you get yourself lost in the weeds, like, you know, do I have the right program for this? Or, oh, I'm going to lay this out. And, you know, I've only got a paragraph now, but when I come back to it and write it, I'm going to do it in this format. It's going to be beautiful. Well, the f- I mean, the first step is just get that raw material, get the writing done, and then you can craft it into something that you can turn into a submission, or you can craft it into something that you can publish yourself or you can craft it into something that serves as a uh, writer's test if you're going for like a script writing job in you know computer games or something like that but being able to do the thing 
that you're trying to do, you got to buckle down and do it. So you're saying me writing everything on the back of receipt paper is in fact a good thing and my co-writer should not be incredibly pissed off with me. Well, co-writing <laughs> is an entirely different situation. So now all that bullshit I talked about having to do for my own work, well, now you're pushing that onto somebody else. So well, you're now mediator. Give and take there. <laughs> I was going to say, as actors, we fully agree with the just do it mentality, but uh, thanks for thanks for spinning that, Ellen. I hope that was a <laughs> thanks for for completely reading me there, <laughs> um, Justin. You've as a person who's interested and as someone who um, you know wrote for them, you must play role playing games. Do you have any games currently going? I imagine if you said no, <laughs> <laughs> no, I hate them. <laughs> uh, I like there's there's an appeal to me to both the long form game and the short form game. And I really like um, one shots. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people don't like them. And weirdly, I think the world of darkness is not extremely well suited to one shots. Uh, because, you know, you're, if you're trying to tell these morality tales, you can do it in a short story. But a lot of times, consequence is on a slow burn in the low in the in the world of darkness, um, or, or horror, you know, where until three episodes down the road, you only find out who the big guy, big bad guy is, or who the, uh, you know, the, the, the mysterious uh, conspirator is um, so for world of darkness style games um, I like and prefer those to be um, kind of chronicle style right over a period of time and uh, right now under quarantine there's not a huge amount of um, structure in place for me to be able to do that uh, right now I've got a kind of uh, ongoing as we pick it up episodic uh, d d5 game that you know whenever everyone can get together we can all you know move dudes around the little grid online you know we're doing a virtual tabletop so that is filling the uh, scratching the RPG itch for me right now um, I do have in the hopper that I'm working on um, my next World of Darkness Chronicle. I've shared little bits of it uh, here and there uh, online um, on Twitter. Every now and then, I'll you know feed a snippet out there, or you know collect some some photographs that I steal from around the web, and always try to credit them, of course. Um, but uh, you know put bits of that planning into. Uh, those tweets. I also am, uh, I've got an 11 year old and a five year old and uh, I love playing board games with them. Um, my 11 year old mm -hmm. uh, actually likes RPGs. She plays with her Girl Scout troop um, and every now and then I'll run the game for the Girl Scout troop. She sounds oh awesome. <laughs> yep. Yep. What do they? What does she play? I'm so intrigued by uh, this. Bard. They play <laughs> a lot of D and D right now because Aww. I think it's probably just the most accessible. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, they also have uh, experimented with a couple of other things. Um, but all like generally in the kind of fantasy realm. You know, my daughter likes Harry Potter, and there's you know one of the other girls in the in the troop likes Harry Potter. So I think they're kind of drawn to the same sort of fancy. That can that can populate the world, you know, mm. where you 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 look a little deeper, and there's and there's wonder there. Uh, but my five year old is very driven by. Um, he loves board games. He loves moving the pieces around the board, and we play things like you know Cauldron Quest or or Labyrinth or Enchanted Forest. I've tried to play RPGs with him. Um, he is less excited about those than he is about um, you know like Luigi's Mansion Three or even yeah. board games. Um, but I mean, he likes the idea of being able to pretend to be somebody. Um, so you know, I think in the future I will, you know, and I'm very much looking forward to playing RPGs with him in the future. Mm. Or just unleash him on a LARP. Why not? He's ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I call him. I say uh, when I drive him home from school, I'm like, "Is it? Are you? Are you little Victor?" And he's like, "No, I'm big Victor. I'm Godzilla Victor." So you know, maybe he's this kind of little terror monster running around the LARP and spitting fire at people. Honestly, I don't think it's a bad idea, like LARPing for kids, because like. They've already got the sense of like, no, 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 this is who I am now. My life is committed to now performing this character uh, and they and they do right like at, 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 at his at his school you know he pretends to be you know he you know me and connor we pretended that you know i was iron man today and he was uh you know, or whoever else he's or you know i mean it, it all comes back to cops and robbers right i mean a game is just it imposes rules on that let's pretend sort of attitude it's yeah. also kind of just a great way to enforce daycare without actually having to pay just give it to a larp group and then you're fine for a couple of hours <laughs> your quest you must protect this small creature <laughs> there may be a boon for you, and that's pizza. 
Uh, my first love was uh, uh, Requiem. And so I've, I've got to ask, do you have a particular favorite clan in either Requiem or Masquerade? Do you, do you find yourself leaning towards playing certain clans or, or having a particular play style? Uh, I like to play generally across the board. I'm one of the people who, especially if there's a kind of scenario already in mind, if the storyteller says, you know, we need someone to do this, this or this, I will, I will happily jump into, um, again, kind of those creative constraints. Um, but kind of given my druthers historically for Masquerade, um, I have liked the Ventru, but recently, more and more, I find myself gravitating toward the Toreador. And I think that, again, comes with being in love with the night and having a sense for, you know, just uh, appreciating what beauty and wonder can be extracted from an awful, awful world. At the same time, I, I... I really love all of the kind of basic seven clans or the core seven clans that came out originally for vampire, just because they hit all the high notes of what vampire myth is. You know, you've got the, the bestial vampire and the gangrel and you've got the monstrous vampire and the Nosferatu and the vampire, witch and the Tremere, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. For, uh, for Requiem, I had always, again, being in, in love with kind of the dark, the, the Deva always drew me. I think I'm probably less able to put that into words. It's just more of an emotional kind of resonance. If you know, you put those five things out on the tabletop, I will go stand in front of the Deva. I was uh, listening to an interview I think you did with uh, the Gentleman Gamer on YouTube where you talked about when you were effectively looking at what the what the writers were giving you for uh, when Rec Room was coming out and you talked about the iterative process of uh, sending back edits and that you felt as though, and I'm trying to quote it so that it jumps your memory because I know that would have been about a year or two ago when you, you discussed this, but you talked about how you would give them, it was at a 10 and you wanted to take it up to 11 and you'd send it back and say, you know, take it again when actually in fact you looking back on it maybe i should have gone to 20 to know that that difference was so significant or, or what the possibilities there was it too much or could we even go to 30 or 40 or 50 can you explain that a bit more the the process or what you mean by that yeah that is is something that comes out of games design as opposed to like writing specifically and it is i think it's attributed to sid meyer originally um but he was talking about like you know let's say you're making a game and here's your your pirate and your pirate has a cannon on the ship and the pirate the, the, the cannon does 10 damage okay and 10 damage is the wrong number for it and so what you should do is if it's not enough on your next iteration, the cannon does 20 damage. Or if it's too much, cut it in half, the cannon does five. But basically, make the big leap first, and that will save you time because you will get a much more impressionistic sense of, oh yeah, okay, it should be 20, or, you know, or maybe it's 21. But if you've gone from 10 to 11 to 12 to 13 to 14, blah, 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 well, that's taking you a bunch of time as opposed to getting much closer to begin with. You know, go ahead and push your boundaries as much as you can in every iteration. And if they are incorrect, you know, great. At least you have a better sense of where they're incorrect as opposed to just kind of incrementally pushing the change, pushing the change, pushing the change. And so uh, like in retrospect, you know, those writers basically had to do a lot of work that eventually got us to the destination, but we could have gotten there much more quickly if we had just kind of taken the reins off, right? Mm. It, it sh I shouldn't have sent them back notes that say, can we get a little more out of this? It could have been like, this is a great idea. What if we took this all the way? And those iterative, those small little steps feel good while you're doing it. It doesn't feel scary or new. It feels like, oh, we're going in the right direction, probably. It feels very safe and very contained. So it's a very sort of self-satisfied way of, of stepping out or developing something, right? Well, if you're paying me by the hour, I will <laughs> do that for you, right? But yeah. if you're paying me, like in a lot of cases, well, you know, a, a, a writer is turning in um, work based on a word rate. So if the final accepted word or work is 10,000 words and it's taken you 50 drafts to get there, all of a sudden, you know, you're making a dollar an hour or something. Yeah. So it's way better to know what you don't want as opposed to uh, maybe this is what will eventually get us to the right place. Commit. I'm saying that's what I'm saying. Fucking commit. <laughs> um, I have a <laughs> sorry. I just got a bit like concerned about you screaming commit at me as a as a lifelong committer. Commit. <laughs> <laughs> you personally. No. I Come can't, on. <laughs> I can't. I can't. I have a question about this. May have been you, or I was. I was reading a lot about in terms of player decisions in Vampire and the idea of everything needing to cost something. We all know that, right? from inherently consuming media or playing games like choices should matter like the any when i was playing vampire every choice i made was preceded by a uh, oh, 
I think oh, I'll do this. <laughs> like it, it hurt. <laughs> and how do you kind of try and push narratives to getting that kind of visceral choice? Because for every player, like things are going to hurt differently. So how do you kind of uh, influence the game and in- influence the narrative so that it will hurt them eventually? <laughs> That's an excellent question. And I think that is what uh, you see in practice why something like World of Darkness is a bit different from something like um, Dungeons & Dragons, whereas Dungeons & Dragons likes to propose, here's a situation, and now you can react to it, whereas World of Darkness says, here's a situation, what do you do? It's, it's a bit more proactive, mm. and it relies on kind of the players having their own motivation or the characters having their own motivations and wanting to see those imposed on the world. And, and like one example here is, you know, let's say I'm, I'm the bad guy and I'm holding the orphanage ransom. And, you know, if the moral choice to you is, do you burn down the orphanage or do you not? Uh, is that <laughs> really a choice? You know, it's, 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 it's bad if I burn down the orphanage, but who, you know, is that really a significant choice to make? Because the, the, the answer is obvious there. So um, in practicality, what you end up seeing is a lot more uh, books or scenarios that kind of propose, here's the state of things, now what? As opposed to, you know, here is the state of things, now go do this, now go do this, now go do this. Mm. And so, you know, for a, a, a kind of fantasy, uh, you know, dungeon exploration sense, you know, you literally follow the sequence of, of you know, rooms and corridors. Um, but a book like, you know, Chicago by Night or Fall of London kind of proposes this overall scenario and says, here's a bunch of different things happening. What do you do? You know, your characters, knowing that this is going on, what do they want to do to make the world better for them? That sounds horrifying. I hate it. And it's great. <laughs> As someone who has problems with making decisions and committing to things, you've created my nightmare. Well done, you. She, she's a delight to play role-playing games with. Um, of the horror variety or the thriller variety. It's it's really a delight running those games for Ellen. But, but I mean, but it's, it's, it's edifying to hear that, right? Because people play games for different reasons. You know, yes. when we all sit around the table together, there are people who literally, they don't want to play. They don't want to make a decision. They just want to hang out with their friends. Yeah. So playing the game to them is a social time. And there are other players who are kind of more, you know, the the actor style players who, okay, what do I see? Okay, here's what I do. And everyone appreciate it. You know, people play to see outcomes come from their (laughs) actions, you know. So what is any individual getting from the game um, can be very, very different around a game table. Yeah. What's my point of fun in in all the players point of fun around the table? What's their goal there? I'm going to grab onto that. Like even beyond fun, Mm, it can be engagement. Like fun is great. Fun is an outcome. Fun is a kind of engagement but you know there there are movies um that are are fantastic that that were very moving that i never want to see again right i'm (laughs) glad i saw this but oh god i never want to watch this again yeah yeah Uh, justin uh we're just about to come to our end here unfortunately but we wanted to ask you uh are you working on anything right at the moment that you can talk about um because obviously there's sometimes where you can't talk about things but is this a moment where you can talk about things you're working on uh i am currently working at funcom in the north carolina office i am working on a game based on the dune ip (gasps) no Um, way so being able to visit arrakis and uh make your way there so that's that's one of the things i'm working on right now so it's it's funny even though i'm not uh working on uh you know the the world of darkness literary property i am working on other other games and other literary properties yeah that's that fantastic. is so fucking cool i'm sorry i was just very very shocked by that that's it is, awesome it is kind of interesting that they have mentioned that because it is a question that i did have for you is that in in terms of where you're at with your career now do you still have bucket list items whether that is in writing or something completely different are there things that you either haven't had a chance to kind of dive into or would like to explore more further that you potentially maybe haven't had the chance to really kind of dip your toes into yet the grail for me is always the um original i don't want to call it a property necessarily that you know i don't want you to think that oh i just want to make something that people consume but you know something that's that's wholly original so i've you know worked on world of darkness obviously i've worked on assassin's creed i'm working on dune i've I've always worked on stuff that basically other people own so ultimately i want to get to a situation where i've made this you know amazing and wonderful thing that's mine, right? That that's, that wholly belongs to me, and I am the complete uh, auteur for it. You know, I complete creative control over it. And the reason that remains on a bucket list for me is I don't know what that is yet. Um, I've got a couple. You know, there's there's plenty of things I like and I'm interested in. But you know, like I was talking about uh, earlier on, um, you know, what what is that that spark? What is that thing that that pushes you forward? You know, always have something to say when you're writing. I want 
this thing that I've created, but I don't know what the thing is yet. So that's that's what I'm chasing right now. When you create it, we'll be the first ones looking for it. Um, Justin, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you you coming onto our podcast and talking about your process, about the industry, and about your kind of journey in the games. You talked earlier about Twitter. Where can people find you on Twitter? Yeah, uh, I am generally active on Twitter, uh, depending on uh, workload, uh, but I am J-A-C-H-I-L-L-I on Twitter. Um, I have a a poor neglected blog that I think uh, probably hasn't been updated in two years or so, but it's uh, just myname.com, justinkilly.com. I surely said something brilliant there, so please go read it. <laughs> he did. I've been reading it. It's very good. I have, actually. It's, it was really informative. Even but... if his Neopets are dying. <laughs> but that's uh, that's the, the long and short of it for me, and uh, I've had a good time here, so thanks so much for having me on. This, is, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you very much for joining us. Yes, um, thank you. We have been Ellen, who you can find at... <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, I'm not on Twitter, but I am on Instagram at EllieBean96. Sean? Oh, goodness. This is always a treat. <laughs> you always uh, forget. My Twitter handle is at Slurl, which is a uh, portmanteau of my first and last name. There you go. Spoiled that. <laughs> S-L-I-E-R-L. And you can find me at Bonding Chris. I'll let everyone know that uh, you can find this podcast and any other podcasts at Babybeard Media. Uh, just search Babybeard Media. Um, we also have an exciting announcement for next week. We're going to be joined by Jay Gray, who's the social media ambassador from R. Talzorian Games, with an exciting announcement that we can't talk about just yet, but it... Uh, it's very exciting. But thank you once again, Justin. You've been a fantastic guest and uh, it's been a truly a delight and it's been an honor for me to, to listen to you talk. So thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having me again. <laughs> truly, so, so much fun here. Truly living up to the, the title of Wonderful Man. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye, you sweet, <laughs> wonderful man. Give satisfaction. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, thanks for listening. See you on the next episode. Where Bye. We'll, Bye. we'll talk to another wonderful man. We do. We do. You have been listening to Adelaide by Night, which is a Roll to Cast production. The best way to find us is on Twitter, Discord, and our Patreon. All our podcasts are on Acast, Spotify, YouTube, and all good podcatchers. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Roll to Cast. Portions of the materials are the copyrights and trademarks of White Wolf Entertainment AB and are used with permission. All rights reserved. For more information, please visit white-wolf.com. This season of Rolltocast is made by fans for fans and is not officially licensed material of White Wolf Entertainment. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.